Welcome to Flow Stars, candid conversations between Dr. Peter O'Toole and the big hitters of flow cytometry. Brought to you by Beckman Coulter at Bite Size Bio. Welcome to this episode of Flow Stars, and today I'm joined by Alexis Gonzalez from University of Melbourne, and we discuss how his academic progression worked in Cuba. In Cuba, you finish university and you go straight for to work. You don't you don't go through the PhD, postdoc. Eventually, you get a job somewhere. Typically, the university kind of match the number of um, uh, applications and the number of positions per year to the expected need in, in five years' time. How much fun he had working with the one and only Andy Riedel. I spent two weeks with Andy and it was mind-blowing. Like, <laughs> I suddenly, I mean, it was like a, so much information and he knew so much. And it was so, so much fun actually working with him and learning from him that I seriously consider taking the job when the job can, became available and Andy was interested in me to apply, uh, in applying, so. And how his kitchen resembles a prep room. I have, I don't know, 150 different spices. I have 130 cookbooks. I have so many kitchen gadgets. My kitchen is like a lab. All in this episode of Flow Stars. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and welcome to this episode of Flow Stars. And today I'm joined by Alexis Gonzalez from the University of Melbourne. Alexis, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, good, thank you. I think the last time we met in person was probably just before COVID. Uh, yeah. China. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember that. <laughs> so we, I think we were both doing some consultancy for Beckman Coulter, looking at uh, their concept of the yeah. SRT, as it was then. I, I, I don't think I asked you. I, I think it was all, I don't think we discussed about, how did you find China? Oh, I really like it. Um, it was my first time there. Um, so yeah, had some time to actually see the sites and go through the markets and eat in some restaurants. It was interesting. Uh, did you take any more time over there? I was kind of in and out. No, yeah, the same. I just went there and came back. But I mean, there was always some time to explore um, yeah. the old town and all that, yeah. Yeah, not much to I was, I guess we got to do the streets and the market, didn't we, on that one day? Because it was a pretty intense from morning, from early morning meeting to what, eight o'clock start meeting through to what, 10 in the evening, still formal yeah. questions. Yeah. They make sure they make the time worth. Okay. Have you seen the SRT yet? The final product? I have an SRT. You have one? It's yeah. cool. They actually did some of the things that we asked and suggested, didn't they? Um, yeah, I'm really impressed, really. Yeah, no, likewise. I think, I think they, do you know what was really good? They got us in at an early, early stage. Yeah. It actually meant that the suggestions from the end users could actually be implemented. And I'm not yeah. sure that's always the case. Quite often a beta test, it's too late. It's the next iteration that gets there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I'm impressed with the instrument. I just think that uh, it came to, to a little too late. Um, I think at the moment we're getting a lot of people doing Aurora panels, so the configuration is quite limited. But most people most people are happy with using 15 colors, so that's okay. But yeah, it's not an instrument that um, I would think is matching the times. But yeah, again, sorting is... Uh, 
typically less demanding than analysis. So people are happy to to just go with small panels. But yeah, oh. it's a very impressive instrument. I was surprised that they managed to pull off everything that they were intended to do. Yeah. And if it's a first generation instrument, but it's not a first generation in say, in, in sense in the in, in the sense that Bermancute has a long experience with some sort of thing. So they were not alone. It's not like, yeah, they're completely new be coming with a sorter. They have a really good idea and they set it up. Yeah, that raises, I don't want to get too geeky for the, the, the non-specialist listener, but it is interesting. This, this system, as you say, it's not a, well, it's not a spectral system for a start. Yeah. So it's not yeah. right up there for, you know, more than 15 colors. Uh, and I was having this discussion yesterday online with someone. I still think there is a place. There's still many, many users that only want two or three, four colors. Having a 15 means you can choose which combination of it. <clears throat> I'm not convinced all sorters or all analyzers, in the case, I think, of the discussion, need to be spectral. You know, I think they will go there eventually, but there's still a market for the lower end is the wrong term to use, I think. I yeah. think <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a bit like having two cars on your drive. You've got your, your your car that you like to do, your long distances, your big family journeys, and you have the smaller car that, you know, you, you'll get to work and back in. I, yeah. I do think there's still that. And the SRTs... I don't know. Of course, yeah, of course. The, 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 the thing is that, I mean, the instrument does what it's meant to do. It's a user-friendly instrument. And it is a beautiful um, instrument in terms of embedded um, checkpoints and all sort of things that you don't see in any other instrument. And also, I like the software a lot. I mean, which is the side side expert software. So, things that you can do with the software is something that I haven't seen with any other software. So, yeah, it is user friendly and it's a pleasure to work with it. I mean, people that have been using the instrument and learning to run it by themselves, they're happy with it. And I agree that you don't we don't need to have sorters that are spectra. Um, that's for sure. And I have, I mean, I have four auroras at the moment and users do not complain uh, by the lack of detectors they have in the aurora, in the area or the cytoflex. Yeah, because people don't sort 30 colors. That, that's not something that people do. Uh, 30 colors are something for exploring, exploring phenotypes and getting the best out of the sample. But when it comes to sorting, you choose, you choose a phenotype and you focus on it. So yeah, so far so good. It's just a binary sorter requires an, an investment, clearly. And at this point, I'm probably interested in looking at spectra sorters, not only because of the number of colors you can get, but also because of the features that you get on top, which is something that you can do best with a spectra analysis or sorters. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's keep applying pressure and let's make sure their next one does that as well. Yeah, That's... I'm sure they're probably thinking about it. <laughs> I, I hope so. Uh, Alexis, you're in Melbourne. I met you before you were in Melbourne. So take take me through your your history of where you started and how you got to Melbourne. So, so what was your first degree in? Uh, I did the degree in biochemistry. So in Cuba and in the University of Havana. So we have uh, the faculty of biology and there were three, three careers to choose, choose from. Biology, there was uh, microbiology and biochemistry. And I went for biochemistry because I thought it was... Uh, the most interesting one. Um, so I did five years of that and then started working as a researcher in an institute in Havana called Center of Molecular Immunology. And I did probably like 10 years of research uh, working in anti-tumor therapies. Um, 
I did my master's there, the PhD there. Um, and yeah, we we're working pretty interesting stuff and the institute was kind of new and they have a very open vision on how to approach cancer, cancer immunotherapy. Um, some of the things that I was working on at the time now are commercial products approved for cancer treatment. And and I, I've heard that they have grown substantially since I left with factories in China, India and all that. They're pretty successful here. Yeah. Um, so I did 10 years of that. I was actually like a research and scientists like a staff scientist yeah yeah in cuba we in cuba you finish university and you go straight for to work you don't you don't go through the phd postdoc eventually you get a job somewhere typically the university kind of match the number of um, uh, applications and the number of positions per year to the expected need in in five years time yeah. So by the time I finished, I knew where I was going to work. And I started working in that place right before I finished the university. So most people would do that. So you have like an internship and you will spend, you know, a month in the summer working in a research lab and working little projects that would end up being your bachelor degree kind of thesis. Yeah. Uh, and if you're successful and, and they like you and you like the place, you end up working there. So you go straight for university to get a job. So that was for like 10 years. Then I went to Portugal to do a postdoc. Why, and it was a why, very... why, why move out? Why, why move to Portugal? Because I was doing a postdoc in something that was a niche kind of thing, and Portugal had the know-how and that. You know? So like people do, they essentially move and go to a quiet experience somewhere else. So I was in Portugal maybe like a year, two years, three years, I think. Maybe a year initially as a postdoc, a year and a half. And at the time, Matthias Howdy, I don't know if you remember Matthias Howdy. Um, he used to be the, the manager of the, uh, they call it the cell imaging unit. So he was in charge of microscopy and cytometry. And he came essentially from the cytometry world, immunologist as well. He used to work in Pasteur Institute, like many people in the Banking Institute where I was there. And he talked to me about maybe trying to, to run that facility. There was a flow settlement facility. The person that was in charge of the facility was leaving and they were looking for someone to take on the job. Uh, so I started with Matthias learning how to operate the Moflow legacy at the time. And it was quite an experience because, uh, yeah, I knew cytometry. I used cytometry as an immunologist, which is what I was doing mostly. But yeah, it was a different, completely different experience to run a Moflow legacy so and i started there essentially i learned i think in three days or something matthias was very impressed about it um because after i essentially i went through the training three days i started running the instrument and and things were running fine and people were happy and i probably spent there three years as a manager or responsible for the flossotomy operations we have very few instruments really fax scan or fax calibre something else and the mofo and it was mostly essentially helping people with sorting of them. Yeah. Alexis, the MoFlow legacy. I, I I was one of the right questions is what is your favorite sort that you've ever worked with? You've used a legacy. Surely that's got to be your favorite. Of course it is. I mean, this is a, this is something very funny. You can say that uh, sort operators, you can divide them between those that work with MoFlows and instruments like that, or, or and people that started and only know. Uh, fully enclosed instruments like the ARIA or et cetera. So the, the Moflo was 
probably part of the reasons I know things about cytometry is because I was working with the Moflow. The fact that you can get to align all the lasers and, and see things and exchange part, repair things and truly shoot on the fly. That was, it's like a school, I think. I still have one of them in the University of Melbourne, a Moflow XCP, and it really pains me to have to get rid of it. Uh, because I think it's the best instrument to learn cytometry. Um, if you don't know, if you haven't worked with an instrument like this, you don't understand things like alignment and errors in measurements and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it is uh, fantastic. And it was meant to be like that. I think Moflo is like modular flow cytometry or something, flow cytometer. It was supposed to be like a Lego instrument, more or less like closer to microscopy in terms of how open the systems are and how you can customize it. Yeah. I think the other, yeah. the other beauty of the MoFlow is you could, it's a performance instrument. It's a high performance, and you could tweak it to make it perfect for pretty much every sample. Mm -hmm. And you can feel it. It is strange. It's not just, as you say, it's not a black box, not an all-enclosed system. You can feel that system. You know how it's performing. It's, a, it's almost an extension of you. It's, it's very strange how you get so close to an instrument. It's a... Uh, yeah, it's I, the same, miss, the same, I, yeah. I miss my legacy. I'm sure many of my users don't because it, it was you had to understand your instrument. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, I, I would imagine like if you are in a high service kind of environment, it helps a lot to have instruments that are, you know, more friendly. Um, not everyone wants to get to the level of knowledge that the MoFlow requires and people. Some users, for instance, will find it really difficult to use the Moflo as a DOI instrument. But um, I think it's, a, it's an issue with cytometry, I think, in, in general. It's the fact that instruments are becoming smaller and, and compact, and um, most instruments will be on the service contracts. You don't have access to the instrument or the parts. You don't know what you're buying sometimes. You don't know, what, you know where the problems come from. And yeah, the Moflo was a school. It's essentially a school. Uh, I run the MoFlow for maybe 13 years, more. Um, and I learned so much. Like you, you go initially from the, you know, monkey see, monkey do kind of, you learn the basics and you kind of follow procedures. Like I was in Portugal, essentially, I learned the instrument in three days, but I didn't know what was happening. I, <laughs> I was making sure that everything was as, if, you know, following the guidelines and trying as best as possible. But um then when I went to Emble in Germany, the with Andy, it was a completely it's like university. I mean, it's like five, 10 years, it's like two two university degrees, just working the Moflow. And we we actually didn't have any service contract. The beauty of the Moflow is that you can buy all the components and you can replace them and you can uh, fix the instrument. So we spent 10 years without a service contract. We rarely have to go by Mancute to help or fix anything. And the instrument looks a little bit like a microscopy lab kind of instrument. We have like seven lasers, two MoFlow side by side. <laughs> kind of crazy. And yeah, doing anything. And, and yeah, as you said, it's a it's an instrument that allows you to fine tune. So the idea that I have with the MoFlow is that you build the instrument for the application. So you don't have to use the instrument as you have it and try to see whether the application will be successful. You actually can build it for people. It's like a tailor-made kind of suit. And users were, users that were accessing the MoFlow were really happy with it. I mean, some people actually will tell me that the MoFlow was more sensitive than our Fortezas, and we have a fantastic Forteza with five lasers, you know, that it was a completely new instrument, and the MoFlow was still better in resolving 
dim signals, surprisingly, that the Fortessa, which is something that people would not typically assume would be the case. But yeah, it's an instrument full of surprises, yeah. So taking you back, you were in, you were in Portugal. How, how many years were you in Portugal before you went to EMBL in Germany? I think three years. Three years, yeah. Three years. And then why switch to joining the absolute mad as a hatter, Andy Riddell? Uh, when I when I was working, as I mentioned, I learned the Moflo, but I didn't know, I didn't have a proper education in South Africa, like a hardcore kind of education. It was more like a user running an instrument and trying to learn on the on the on the process in the process. But uh, Matias Howdy, which was my manager in Portugal, he left uh, at some point Portugal and went to Germany. So he went to work with uh, in Embo, where Andy was. And he organized for me to spend maybe two weeks of a kind of advanced uh, training with Andy. And I went there. I was still working in Portugal. I went there like for two weeks. And uh, we, I spent two weeks with Andy and it was mind-blowing. Like, <laughs> I suddenly, I mean, it was like a, so much information and he knew so much. And it was so so much fun actually working with him and learning from him that I seriously consider taking the job when the job came, became available and he was interested in me to apply, uh, in applying. So I applied for the job initially and I missed the first round of interviews. It was kind of funny. Like he called me on the day of the interview saying, hey, Alexis, I, I, are, you, are you aware that we have an interview today for you? What are you? <laughs> and I said, oh man, I didn't get the message. So I missed the email. I don't know why. And so he told me, well, look, like next time, Next time, if I have another position, I will let you know because I really wanted to know you and I want you to, to join the facility. But what happened is that the person that was the, the favorite for the job, for whatever reason, the, the whole the application and the selection, at some point, the person they were looking as the best possible candidate canceled last minute. Um, and then Andy essentially, instead of going to the second in line, Andy just called me and said, hey, could you could you head over here? We can do an interview for you. If you're happy, uh, you get the job. And um, I want you, I want them to meet you first. So that's the way it was. Essentially, I went to Germany, did the interview with um, the head of the golf facilities at the time, uh, Christian Bulan and all the people that were core managers as well. And yeah, it was straight, straight on. Like I got the job then after that. So that's why I moved to Germany. And the reason why I moved to Germany to work with Andy is because Andy is a genius. And I knew that I was going to get all the education that I wanted. Um, and it, it was exactly like that. So there was no um, nothing different. The fact that I said already I knew him out of this uh, two weeks internship uh, yeah, made me feel confident about it. That's that's the reason. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, I think I know my flow cytometry fairly well. I think I can still learn from Andy. I, I, yeah. I, think, he's a, I think he's a flow genius. Not, not just a flow it, star, but a flow genius. It is. It is. It is. It is. He, he is more than passionate. He's as passionate about, he's probably the most passionate flow cytometrist, maybe, to, to flow. Yeah. And sorting, especially. I, I think he's so... You know, there, there are stellar stars out there. Even you know, I'm not going to name names because I'm going to miss someone out. But Andy's passion about it is just, I, I just on a slightly different level. Yeah, Andy is. Uh, how can I say this? 
Andy is a guy that think of the out of the box constantly. So I spent, imagine, 10 years there. I, I think I, Andy stayed there until 2012. So we probably were there together for maybe six years or so. And and every day was fun. I mean, Andy had this idea. And also he, he brought a lot of things. I mean, part of the things that I think in satometry and part of, part of my, you know, like my, uh, how do you call this? Uh, my ideals of satometry come from Andy. Uh, I remember the first time, one of the first chats that we had, he was telling me what, what I was expecting of the satometry. What was my goal? What, what was my, you know, the things that I wanted to do? And coming from the immunology background, I, I told Andy that I wanted to to try a big panel <laughs> and do a big, big panel, like 10 colors, I said. And, <laughs> and he told me, well, why not to actually think that maybe another challenge is to find the dimmest signal? Um, maybe the challenge is not to get that many colors, but to find and be able to resolve the dimmest signal possible. And essentially, we spend all the time in EMBO working on that because people in EMBO were molecular biologists, so it's not a typical immunology kind of environment in which people want more markers and they want to do this immunophenotyping. They, they were more interested in, I don't know, um, Fluorescent protein tag gene yeah. that were lowly expressed. Uh, they wanted to sort the cells for doing, I don't know, advanced microscopy and do the whole map of um, proteins and uh, factors acting in, in mitosis. It was there were projects like this. So essentially they will tag every single gene that they could think of that were involved in the machinery, and they they would come with the cells that were extremely um. Um, essentially, the efficiency were really low at the time, and the the the, the intensity were really really low. So that's the reason why, in Emble, the focus was that resolution, 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 trying to make sure that we get the best out of things. And sometimes the sample didn't have even staining. Like, if you're working with imagine like marine animal uh, organisms that don't have any antibody for it, you had to go for structural markers and all all sort of things and work together with microscopy to identify populations. Yeah, it was really a massive school. And yeah, sensitivity was the, the main uh, concern for us when I was there. So yeah, uh, I actually came back to immunophenotyping back in when I came to Melbourne, really. Uh, for the time that I was in Emble, we, we rarely would do more than, I don't know, four colors, five colors. But every color was really a, a challenge. And, yeah. um, so you spent 10 years, did you say, EMBL? Yeah. Which is... Because they, they have a limited amount of time, don't they, that you can actually work a TMBL. Yeah, that's the that's idea there, yeah. Okay, so you're up to your limit. So why Melbourne? Oh, uh, Melbourne. When I finished in Emble, or before I finished in Emble, I knew there was a position opening in Melbourne University. And I think Rui was the one that told me about it. And... Yeah, when I finished, I essentially had to, before I finished, I started looking for places to go. There was one option in Amsterdam, um, and there was the option in Melbourne. And Melbourne seems like the most challenging one, and uh, it was kind of a big jump from what I was doing, working by myself or with uh, maybe one person, that's it, and with limited instruments to go to manage a massive platform with 30 instruments and seven nodes and staff and 350 users. and Yeah, so it was a big, massive jump. And I thought I liked the challenge. So that was one of the reasons why Melbourne. Second reason is that I knew Melbourne already. I have been here maybe three times before moving 
I'm taking the job at the University of Melbourne. My partner is Australian, so yeah, I knew Melbourne already, and I was in love with the city, so I couldn't think of any other place to actually leave than Melbourne. And so it was kind of a, I don't know, it was a little bit of alignment of things that led to me to work in Melbourne. And I think it was a good decision, really. Um, I feel like Naimbo years are a little bit like, uh, I don't know, primary school. <laughs> as difficult as they were and as challenging as they were, yeah, they were really uh, basic compared to what you face when you work in the university environment. Yeah. So, so that's interesting because one of the questions uh, when you're talking about EMBL, you know, I, I think EM, EMBL, so the European Molecular Biolo Biological Laboratories, which is kind of a, a European uh, not although it's in Germany, it's kind of its own European site, so it's kind of it's a bit odd the way it sits within it. The users there are very, very uh, driven because they only have short careers there before they have to leave. And you can imagine they're really demanding. But where has, from the academic uh, expectations from the users, where's been the most demanding location? Has that been Portugal uh, when you were there? Was it? EMBL, or is it where you are now in Melbourne? Hmm. Demanding and challenging Look, users. Want the expectations are such that. Uh, uh, I think. Look, it's a different. Each place place has a different flavor. Um, I think between Germany and Melbourne are the most demanding places, and and the reason for that is is a dual reason. In, in, in Emble, they you're working with molecular biologists. And these people, typically, they use cytometry, but cytometry is not the main, um, you know, it's not the bread and butter. They, yeah. they go to cytometry for very practical reasons. And they don't probably get to know the technology to the fullest. So in Emble, we and Andy and myself have a, a big job to make sure that we translate their witches into experimental design and, and proper experiments and, and run. So... It was amazing because you get the most amazing questions from people that don't know anything about cytometry. So they they come with the idea of what they want, but they are not biased by whatever they think the technology is. Yeah. So they will come with the biggest challenges, and it was all the time like this. I mean, I remember in the time that I was in Embo, I think that the challenge, I mean, the, the task for us was to translate, as I said, whatever they wanted to do with actual experiments that were successful. And we would rarely say no to people, actually. <laughs> Part of the fun is that if we needed to, we'll buy components and modify the instruments and get bigger lasers and try to essentially try to accommodate what they wanted uh, to the fullest. And typically, we were able to do so. In rare occasions, we will say, no, look, this is beyond what we can do. The instruments are not able to cope with that. But that was a challenge. So the challenge of working with um, uh, people that are self-driven, they are fantastic scientists. I mean, Embol is a little bit like an incubator in Europe. So the the idea is that many European countries put money to the to the the funding of the place. And it's actually more like an European little island in Germany. Um, but yeah, people come from everywhere. You, you meet people from all over the place. And people that go there typically are extremely uh, talented. Uh, they have a very strict selection process. So from CIs to, to students, they were all ambitious. Um, but yeah, you have the idea that you're essentially working with someone that is not familiar with technology, so you need to coach them all the way from the idea to the execution. Uh, I think Melbourne is also challenging because we all, I've also worked with people that are extremely talented, 
Um, they are a lot of them are immunologists, but we also have people working in I don't know neurosciences and developmental biology and microbiology and marine biology. So they what I used to get in Emble, and I get it also at the University of Melbourne because the platform is very broad and people are not only immunologists that typically know what they're doing, but we get all sort of people. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I have more 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 requests and things that I would like to do than time that I have to invest on them. But yeah. So thinking along those lines, what, uh, what's been your biggest challenge to date in your career? Uh, what do you mean challenge? What have you found uh, the biggest task or most difficult task you've had to enable or deliver? Oh, I mean, I've, after working like, I don't know, 15 years, you get a couple of them. I think one of the things that I would not say intense of challenge, intense in sense of um, uh, experience, like amazing experiences. I remember in Emble, for instance, setting up the Moflo for chromosome sorting, and that being absolutely mind-blowing, beautiful. Like uh, the idea that you set up the instrument for it, but when you run the samples initially, you still have to fine-tune and tweak the whole thing. Before you see the chromosomes, that was like, I don't know, it's like a <laughs> awakening kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, Okay, so been, I'll go another way then. What has been the most difficult time? So, so it's not just challenging, but, you know, everyone's career can look serene from above the water. But yeah. below it, there can be some real difficulties at some point. Uh, so what, what have you found the hardest, most difficult time in your career? Uh, I don't tend to feel that that strongly about things in terms of letting letting them letting me affect me in a way. But I think the most difficult time probably was the time in Portugal, because it was the beginning, and I wasn't fully sure uh, whether I will continue doing cytometry or doing something else. So it was a moment of transition. I mean, transitions are difficult. Uh, once you are in the field and you know what to expect, you kind of ready for it. But I was coming from the research background into more like a technology kind of uh, job, uh, not having full understanding of the technology in depth when I started. Yeah, it was a difficult time, clearly. Uh, you stress about things that you don't fully understand. But I think that was, I would say that was the most difficult time. Um, so in a way, going to Emboff was like initial, like really started my, my career in cytometry. My commitment to cytometry started when I met Andy. Uh, a little bit, I think cytometry still works like, uh, you know, like medieval kind of uh, <laughs> uh, jobs in which you learn from the, the craft from, you know, a kind of uh, um, um, a person that is not like a degree in cytometry. You learn a little bit depending on where you are and what you have been exposed to and who you work with. Alexis, you mentioned the difficulty of transitioning into flow cytometry as a technology. What about moving countries I, I not everyone goes from country to country to country to country how and you know culturally you've gone from cuba to portugal maybe you know transition i'd say portugal to germany is a pretty big transition and then germany yeah. to Melbourne is, is very different again so how did you find all those transitions on a personal level just you know the community the people you're around settling into different countries how have you found that fascinating I mean, it's not a challenge for me uh, i think some friends some of my close friends think that i'm fearless i don't think in terms of 
um, how do you call this? I'm happy to move. Yeah. I have been moving for a while now. I have been in three countries and I live in Cuba for 30 years. I think every time you move to a country, you have a, a kind of a fresh start in terms of things and you're exposed to new things and you learn new cultures and things about, you know, the food, for instance. I think one of the reasons that I love Melbourne so much is the, how rich it is in terms of food and, and, and options. It's a very multicultural city. It's a massive city as well. But yeah, I don't, I don't see it as a challenge really. Every, every place has an opportunity to, to grow and to learn things. And I think the more you do it, the more you realize how biased your initial perception of things are, how much you're affected by what your country think the world should be. And then when you move to another place, you learn, oh, okay, this is actually different here. And um, you learn things from each place that you are. So I have been essentially taking things from every country, uh, which is funny because I don't, forget them i essentially keep them on board i still feel very closely attached to portugal um it was my first country after cuba and i have an amazing time there i mean i mentioned it was difficult in terms of switching from research to satometry but in terms of live experiences and people that i met portugal is at the top of the rank of <laughs> you know it was amazing so i live with brazilians i have friends from angola i have a lot of portuguese friends the the lab was very lively and multicultural i think we will have dinners and go to pubs and uh, the city itself lisbon is a beautiful city uh, i cannot believe how beautiful lisbon is so yeah i still have things that i you know like i still do portuguese teaches and <laughs> and have Portugal cooking devices and things like that because yeah, you just add it on. But how, um, how much of that do you think is influenced by age? Because you'd have gone. Sorry, to, what? How much do you think is influenced by age? Because you went to Portugal when you were obviously younger, well, probably twenty years younger if I'm counting up the amount of time you've been in Melbourne and the amount of time you're in Germany. And the freedom you said you know you go down a pub, you know you mix and socialize. Does you know, when you went to Melbourne, you've now got a partner, you're more settled there, so your ability to go out is less, I presume. You know, does that... Well, well in the city or what? Well, just with colleagues and, you know, because... Yeah, yeah, of course. To, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know age, age is a big factor, clearly. I mean, look, if you're 55 or something on 60, you most likely would not go anywhere. <laughs> you, you will go to visit yeah clearly but no one moves at that age typically typically unless you are a genius and you are a professor and that's what you do like that's what scientists do all the time they are moving career they're moving places depending on where they get the funding and where they get the grants but yeah i think as age goes by it's a little more difficult it's true but i don't feel really old i have a problem that i don't feel my age at all and <laughs> um so yeah, I'm not I'm not afraid of things. I'm constantly trying new things. And moving countries is uh, it's an amazing thing. Like I would not change it. But yeah, clearly, the older you get, the difficult it gets. The more the more you're bound to the place that you are, yeah, the most difficult, the more the more the difficulties in trying to start from scratch somewhere else. Especially if it's a place that is not culturally related to you, like a different culture, a different language. Yeah. Do you see yourself moving again? Oh, uh, I'm not thinking of moving at this point, but yeah, I would not say no to anything. Like if life showed me something is that you sometimes cannot predict the future. You just need to be ready for it. Yeah. You, you don't know. I didn't know in Cuba that I wanted to have cytometry. I didn't know what some, when I was a child that there was a thing called cytometry. That was not part of my plan. 
So yeah, I didn't know that I need to know things about engineering when I was studying biology. I actually despised engineering when I was in Cuba. Um, and now suddenly I embrace it and I love it. So yeah, life changes all that. I think the most important thing in life, no matter what you do, is that you keep growing. And uh, it can be in your country. You don't have to move away from your country to grow, but moving away from your country gives you another perspective, a more global kind of view of things and how relative things are. Yeah. So that's actually a really good segue because one of my questions always is what what was the first job you ever wanted that you can remember as a child ever wanting to be? So around the age of 10 or so, you think, oh, yeah, I want to be a what, do, what was the first job you want? You thought you Oh, worked? really stupid. I wanted to be. I don't remember really, probably, if I remember correctly, I wanted to be things that were unreasonable. Like I wanted to be an astronaut and I wanted to be a firefighter, which is fine. Uh, I have very simple witches. I didn't grow up, it's kind of funny, like I didn't have a reference. Imagine if you if you are growing in a family of professors and doctors and that, you, you probably kind of have an idea what the profession entails. You have a preference from your family in a way. So you kind of say, okay, I want that or I don't want that at all. In my case, it was I was open. I could do whatever I wanted. My family was really humble and my with education really up to, I don't know, sixth grade or ninth grade, secondary school, nothing really massive or nothing at all related to university. So I didn't actually know what I was going to be. I think I was more and more into biology as time went by. But I could have easily done something else like mathematics or something that I like a lot when I was in this in school. Yeah, I didn't have an idea of profession. Actually, I was a little bit like, it's kind of funny. Like, I don't have this. Uh, I understand that people have this, you know, like, how do you call this? From the very early age, they know they want to be something. I never actually was sure about what I wanted. All I wanted was to keep growing and learning. So I, I liked school and I liked school in many different things. So I used to like, I don't know, things as different as literature and history, physics or mathematics or biology. So I didn't have a kind of a preference really. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say having, this, having done quite a few flow stars and the microscopists, very few, and there are, there are a few, but very few at the age of 10, 12, actually saw themselves as a scientist even mm -hmm. but you know it, it's something that they fell into going through high school into university and even then you know some of the biggest names never saw themselves going towards flow cytometry or microscopy they they were there for different reasons and then just found what they were good at and moved yeah. so my next question obviously i you're very happy at what you're doing now so we'll leave what what you'd like to do now if you could spend the day or week what what job would you like to try out? Yeah, even just a sample. What sort of, oh, you know, I, yes, I've got my career here, but I'd love to know what it's like to do this job. What job would you like to go and try out? I would love to be a chef. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, yes, I love cooking a lot. And I will see myself happily in a kitchen, even if it's, you know, helping a chef. <laughs> like assistant chef i love it I, I never get tired of it i never get sick of it i can do it no matter how tired i am it makes me happy big time so yeah cooking probably is the thing that i like the most and it's uh, very difficult and stressing <laughs> based on based on the experience of all the chefs that 
and how stressful working kitchen is, but I love it. And I think cooking is a little bit like, I don't know, like laboratory kind of uh, environment. You're playing with flavors and doing things. So it's not that different. I'm not changing completely every year. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I like to do. That's a good answer. Have you ever seen The Menu, the film, The Menu? No. Which film is that? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it's fairly, fairly recent, but go and watch The Menu. I, I had the misfortune of watching it going to Saito. <laughs> yeah, I heard about then, it. <laughs> I was, uh, we went out for dinner. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Uh, we we're very fortunate. It was fun. It was a very nice meal. You know, it's proper <clears throat> seven, eight course meal, and it was like walking into the movie. And if you've seen the movie, that makes it rather unnerving. Uh, so I'll say yeah, that, yeah. and we'll talk about it once you've watched it. I just love the fact that the next day I am sitting in essentially very, very similar environment <laughs> to the menu. I, I was looking at those waiters and waitresses with great suspicion. Yeah. And then I worried that the waiters and waitresses watched the movie. And so they were looking at us thinking, are we looking at them with great suspicion? And then I realized I'm now looking at them thinking, are they looking at us, looking at them with oh, great suspicion? Oh, wait a second, wait a second. It's a movie that escalated into something really uh, dark. Like it's a kind of a restaurant that ended up being like a kind of a gore kind of a situation. In an entertaining way, yes. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I love cooking, but I love cooking. Uh, the things that I like cooking actually are very, very broad. I I'm, I know when I say that I love cooking, it's not that I want to be a chef, like a super chef. I'm not, I love Hesson Blumenthal and things that he does with cooking and all that, but I love more the 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 research kind of thing. How do you can create flavors and how you learn techniques to produce some sort of effect or make people actually happy of eating. But my food typically is very simple. It's mostly soft food. It's the food that I grew up with. I love Indian food. I love Japanese food for different reasons. Um, so yeah, I tend to do a lot of normal stuff. Like I don't, I don't embellish my dishes or, or try to do like a, you know, like a tiny thing like no. but yeah, I love that. I, I love that too. So what is your signature dish? Oh, um, I don't have one really. Uh, Peter, I have, I don't know, 150 different spices. I have 130 cookbooks. I have so many kitchen gadgets. My kitchen is like a lab. I don't have a signature dish, I think. I have things that I love to eat. And surprisingly, um, I think that happened to everyone. The things that I love to eat the most are the things that I grew up with. So no matter how many countries I have been and how many things I have tried, when it comes to comfort food, I always think in terms of what I grew up with. And the things that I grew up with were the typical, you know, Caribbean kind of food, like, you know, black beans and, and a lot of side dishes and things with vegetables and rice. I had to have rice all the time. So, yeah, I, I, will, I will say that my black beans are pretty good. <laughs> that's based on what my partner and people say but i don't have a signature dish I, I tend to do many things i tend to do as many as possible and i keep doing new dishes all the time yeah so, so who's the cook at home are you the main cook or your partner i am the cooker yeah yeah do they wash up or just load a dishwasher 
<laughs> yeah, the typically, typically, my partner doesn't like cooking at all. And I mean, he's very good at doing things like desserts. He loves that, but he doesn't do any main cooking. He doesn't like cooking, but he's very good at cooking, actually. It's just that I take on the kitchen and he trusts me with it. And essentially, he's my, my little guinea pig. I do all the things that are funky and he tell me if he likes it or not. So stay in the menu of the house or no. But um, yeah, I love cooking. Um, I think that's interesting. So he does desserts and and you do the main courses. There's a big difference, isn't there, I think, between desserts and main main courses and starters. You can taste as you go through. Desserts, you follow a recipe and you pray. Yes. Yes. And that tells you a lot about him. He's very much organized and methodic. So desserts are something that are perfectly in his alley. When I do desserts, I'll do the same. I'm very methodic as well because, I mean, you, you cannot mess up with recipe, you know, ingredients and amounts. And it's super amazing and fancy, but I'm not much like a sweet kind of guy. I don't, I like sweet things, but I don't crave them all the time. So I tend to go more for, I don't know, I one of the things that happened since I left Q was the fact that I could now do whatever I want. So from the the, the, the limited kind of options that I have in Q, well, suddenly I have the whole world to try. And um, I like cook. I like the, I like essentially, I, I think you cannot get the culture and the people by the food they eat and the, and the meals they make. It's like, imagine like thousands of years of experience all of them combine, uh, essentially uh, taking you into a dish. Um, and the more alien they are, the more I'm I'm fascinated by them. I mean, uh, at the moment in, in, in Melbourne, I think my biggest crush is anything Japanese, just because it's the complete opposite of what I grew up eating. The, the way they cook, the things, the, the techniques they use, how tidy they are, tidy when it comes to the kitchen, the, the, the dinners and... It is fascinating. So, yeah, I love most savory things, yeah. And there are so many options anyway. Is there anything you do not like to eat? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, uh, hmm. There are things that I don't like to eat, but not because they might not taste good. It's much like a matter of principle. I would not eat, for instance, dolphins. Uh, I would not eat endangered species and I would eat the brain of a monkey, things that we're used to, you know, <laughs> uh, things, no, there, there are things that I would never eat because I don't want to like, essentially not because I would not like them, but in terms of things that I don't like eating, I don't have anything really. I try most things and I don't get to the point that I hate them enough to say, I don't like you, but yeah, I have my preferences, but. I don't have things that I don't like. I cannot think of it. When I was a young a kid, I used to dislike things. Like I couldn't eat, for instance, I don't know, beetroot. And, and that changed very quickly when I went to the uh, to the high school. I was in a boarding school and we were always hungry. <laughs> and we were essentially eating anything. And many things that I used to dislike suddenly became fine. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll, some quick fire questions for you. Okay, yeah. so are you an early bird or night owl? Both. Both. A little bit of a... Yeah, both, I think. Yeah, It depends. PC or Mac? Mac. McDonald's or Burger King? Burger King. Ooh, okay. Cuba or Portugal? 
completely. I would say Cuba, but I don't think in terms of one or the other. I would say both. Okay. Portugal or Germany? Oh, Portugal. Portugal. Okay. So, <laughs> so Portugal or Australia? Australia. Australia or Cuba? Just uh, sneaky. I will say, look, I love Cuba. Yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like you're comparing uh, love, love, you know, like love stories. Cuba was my first love and I grew to love it even more since I left, but I have to give it to Melbourne. It's, I would not say Australia as a whole, I would say Melbourne. And when I leave, I'm in love with it. Um, and it's a fantastic city for anyone that tried, really. Uh, so, yeah, I would say at the moment, at the moment, Melbourne. Right. I but think yeah, Cuba as well. I, I, I eh? tried, but I think you've anyone you've kept your passports, so you're fine. You're good to <laughs> Coffee or tea? Coffee. Uh, short or long? Espressos or short? Well, middle, typically middle range, but more to the strong side of it, like maybe middle espresso. Yeah. Beer or wine? Wine. Red or wine white? at home, beer outside, you know, beer in the pubs. One at home. Is that because you can't get? I like both. In the pub? No, because one is something that I enjoy in a dinner, or something that I enjoy at home. It's something cozy, um, warm. If I go to the pub, I like beer. Typically, I mean, in Germany, for instance, that was my big training in beer. I love beer since I live in Germany. And before that in Portugal, but Germany was like a masterclass. And then you go to Belgium and the beer is amazing. So the beer is as good as the wine. So yeah, beer in social situations and wine at home or during dinner. Yeah, Belgian beers. Now you've taken my mind somewhere else. They are awesome. Chocolate or cheese? Cheese. Now, I think I knew that you said about your not the sweet tooth and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, TV or book? Ah. Both. I used to be a lot of a book nerd and read a lot of books when I was a younger kid. And yeah, I went through many of them. So yeah, books at the time. But then I love TV, especially TV nowadays. Like we have the quality of the TV that looks almost like cinema. Uh, I tend to watch TV a lot. You have documentaries and all the TV shows, of operas, whatever. And it's a good way to relax. And uh, do you have any TV vices? Trashy TV? What? Actually. Any TV vices? Any trashy TV yes. you secretly like? Uh, oh, that's a good one. Good one. Um, I don't know if you can could you consider all reality TV trashy. I don't think they are all trashy. No, but I, I tend to like some reality TV that that is um, fun. I, uh, you have this Survivor in Australia, which is awesome to watch. Um, it's kind of amusing, and when they are properly done, it's surprisingly entertaining and um what else maybe cooking shows are like as well oh, that, that's i want to say trashy but yeah yeah okay what's your favorite film well that's another difficult one peter i love many 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 different films so i can i don't have a favorite one i can tell you several but not one okay. um give me two uh mm, uh uh, there is a film that I like a lot when I was younger, um, when I was in Cuba, called Stalker. It's a Russian film. 
we used to be exposed to Russian films a lot, as you can imagine. Um, so yeah, the film is by a guy called Tarkovsky, and the film is uh, it's kind of a science fiction movie. It was done at the same time that the Star Wars was done, were done. But this was uh, the Russian take on it, extremely poetic, very much um, all the power in the image. You don't get to see a, you know, space, spacecraft, you don't see, you get to see an alien, but you can feel the presence in the movie. It's amazing. And it looks like a, a film done with very little resources. I think it was filmed in Chernobyl. So you have all the alien, Chernobyl before the actual nuclear accident, yeah? Um, so that was some film that I really liked a lot. And another movie that I liked a lot was Fight Club. Um, yeah. A while ago. Again, so, I, I tend to like films that are kind of weird or kind of make me feel something unusual. Do you have a favorite Christmas film? <laughs> um, no. I, I cannot I cannot tell you one really. Uh, I like Christmas movies when it's Christmas, but I grew up without Christmas, so my Christmas experience actually comes from Europe and uh, living in Australia. In Cuba, Christmas wasn't a thing, so uh, the whole religious part of it wasn't a thing. So mm-hmm. it was a communist country. Religion was not something that people was you know will openly uh, endorse and. Christmas wasn't a thing. In Cuba, the tradition is more Year's Eve. So what, what is for you Christmas, for us, is Year's Eve. Uh, the whole family thing. Uh, we don't have the presents. We just have a lot of food and get drunk. But the, but yeah, I don't have enough knowledge of Christmas movie to tell you one. Okay. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. I had a feeling it was going to go that way on this one. And your favorite color? Uh, I don't have one. That's a, that, that's a very bad man. You're, you're hitting me with questions that I cannot answer. I don't have a favorite color. I don't have a favorite food. Uh, I love all the all the seasons. But if I have to say a color, probably uh, I would say green. Maybe green, yeah. Your, your jump is slightly green. Yeah, it is kind of green, but it's not my favorite color. My favorite color is more like kind of wheel green that you get um um, in the afternoons, it's a kind of a bluish green. Okay. The turquoise yeah, teeny green. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alexis, what do you do outside of, besides cook? Do you have any other hobbies? Uh, I have a lot of hobbies that I would love, love to get into. I love photography, but I, I don't have any time to do any of that. A uh, massive collection of cameras, lenses, and all that, books to read, <laughs> filters and flashes. <laughs> Um, I think mostly uh, going out, going to the city, wandering around. I don't have many hobbies really. Ah, uh, oh, well, something something that I really love is to um, go to the forest and harvest mushrooms. I do that every every autumn. So foraging stuff. I'm gonna switch back into work mode. Uh, could you give me really quick? We are quite close to the hour who've been your inspirations i think i probably know this already yeah who's actually helped shape your career guess guess who yeah andy, andy of course yeah <laughs> and what's your favorite conference favorite conference that i attended or what that you go to that what, what's your what, what do you uh, typically typically saito typically will be saito yeah and why By weren't far. you there this year 
Well, I wasn't there. I, don't, I cannot be here all, all the time, but yeah, I love oh. Saito. I love Saito. I love people in Saito, and I love the whole nerdy, you know, convention kind of side of it, and all the fans and all the parties after the conference as well. Do you have a favorite Saito that you've been to? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I would say probably one of the first ones that I went to. I went to one in Montreal many, many years ago. And that was when I met most of you guys. Um, I met Andy there as well. And Simon Morner and all the, the you know, the English uh, gang. <laughs> So it was the first one, and it was very good as well. It was, a, I think, there was a kind of nice workshop on sensitivity uh, that ended up in a kind of massive intellectual fight, and that was interesting to witness. And yeah, yeah and and I love Canada when I went there. You think yeah. there's less of that now, and those intellectual discussions and fights. It's not fights. I know it's just opinions and strong opinions. You know, they're, they're not really fights. But yeah, you think this? Well, I think this pure now. Yeah, I think. You know, they, they still are. It, it depends on the topic. I think the one that I went to was the sensitivity of QB and, and all the things that most people find like kind of offensive in a way because they did satometry for many, many years without ever, ever thinking of satometry or sensitivity in terms of quantum efficiency and background and things like that. So, yeah, it was more like a reaction to something new and something truly useful. Um, I heard that there have been discussions as well around things like nanoparticle detection yeah anything that is hot clearly you will have big passionate people uh, and that's awesome i mean that's awesome i don't i don't think that will be that frequent i mean if you go into Santo and you're sitting and looking at a lecture uh, most likely you will not get that kind of fight the time is limited anyway um i think workshops are the best place to do that when you have people openly discussing and you have uh, space for questions and, and answers but and when people gather on the same topic and they're all experts in a way and they have their views on things, I think that's something that, yeah, is very good to have. I think it's interesting. You say you that first site or you met so many of us and that helps with the networking. How well networked is Australia for FlowSite? How well networked is Australia? Oh, it, is. it is. It is. I mean, Australia, Melbourne has a massive amount of sites doing satometry and where I work is actually like a hub that is very close. It's north to the city. It's very close to the city, like walking distance, 10 minutes to the CBD, to the commercial center. But you have a lot of research institutes in that place at the same time. So I have a match in Simon Monard is across the road. You have a cancer center next by. And yeah, it's a smaller group, but it's they are well connected and they have the, 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 the ACS, the Association Society of Satometry meetings as well every year. So yeah, it's a it's a small but kind of close crowd. Yeah. Which which is good, isn't it? I think it's important that that those networks exist and Saito is quite often a good place to meet and develop national yeah. networks, not just the, from the international side. Yeah. We are so close up to the hour. I'm gonna ask you just one more question. Where do you see the future of flow cytometry going? Sensitivity? Colors, user friendliness. What's going to make the biggest change? You know, what's the next step change? Can you predict that? Do you have a feel for what you'd like the next step change to be? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. I think we are. I mean, based on what, how things are going, I would imagine things will 
become more and more of uh, small enclosed instruments. Uh, I don't think there is an instrument that would match all the needs. So I think there is still space for diversity. Um, otherwise, we have been threatened several times by different technologies coming with new ideas and you know doing better what cytometry have failed to achieve. So it's a little bit like a reactive kind of field. It doesn't work sometimes. It works by reaction to something else. So I would say that the new thing is cytometry will be will be coming from a challenge or someone else trying to challenge the technology altogether, as it has been so far. Uh, sensitivity is something that is interesting because although it's something truly important for uh, accommodating more and more um, challenging applications, it's not the main dish in cytometry. Cytometry is still heavily influenced by immunology and immunophenotyping. So whatever they need is a market that most companies will go for, which is sad because cytometry can do much more than just covering the needs of immunology. Um, but yeah, I cannot anticipate essentially where it's going. I'm hoping to see, for instance, this new sorting with imaging and see how it looks like. Have you had one? Have you tried um, the, the BD I, I, sorter? I, I've got good details of it, not had it in my hands yet. Yeah, yeah. But it looks we hopefully get one very interesting. at the end of the year, just to look. There will be a demo here. But uh, yeah, I that's... That, I think that what they've done, how they've executed it, is, is good. I, I, I... Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I would love one, but I'm not sure whether we'll get one or not. I don't know if you get the same, but when I ask users about the imaging side of things, like, are you interested in doing sorting with imaging? If I'm asking immunologists, they, they don't care really. In the past, again, when I ask, but asking things like, do you need a spectrocytometer? They will say, oh no, we are fine with the photosynthesis. And then when you get the spectrocytometer, they all like it and they yeah. all want to use it. So it's a little bit like, it's a very funny thing. Like, Users tend to be a little bit conservative sometimes. They are used to an instrument and they want to keep them. Um, so I don't know actually how useful it will be. I know that some people doing marine biology will benefit from the imaging side of things. People that don't have many markers, yeah? And they want to actually look at the morphology of things as a distinguishing factor. But yeah, I cannot think of anything else. I think my fear is that it will become more and more user-friendly. Uh, <laughs> okay, cytometers small enough to be sold as to as many people as possible. And, and you will still have the challenge of cytometry because there are so many ways in which you can produce wrong data in cytometry. So if you don't know what you're doing, you, I don't think there is a truly, um, absolutely user-friendly uh, without the requirement of some expertise to back things up and to understand the data. That's where machine yeah? learning sorting could could make a big change because at the moment you're right sorters can be easy but the ability to know how to gate properly to yeah. get to your populations and not contaminated but let's see where this base goes alexis we are up to the hour so i'm going to say thank you very much everyone who's listened or watched please do go back you've heard about really yeah you've heard about other cytologists go back listen to the back catalog of them but alexis you've been great to have on today uh, for me, early morning, for you, late afternoon, uh, bigger time zone difference to normal. But it's been great to get to know you a bit more personally, uh, which is super cool. And I look forward to you cooking for us. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Take care, Peter. Thank you Alexis, so much. Thank you. Cheers. Enjoy your day.